Well, can we put our hands together for the freedom we have in Jesus? That is the good news. My name is Joe. I serve as lead pastor here at New Freedom. I'm so happy that you've chosen to join us in person and online. Welcome to all of our guests. I have an announcement of good news that's going to take place in this room next Sunday, right after our uh, worship service, right at the very end. We're going to have a time of celebration, one of the favorite celebrations that we do all year long, a couple times a year, is we have believers' baptism. We are going to honor the Lord and, and, and introduce those who have said, I want to be identified with the family of God right here. We're going to open up these two uh, side, these, these four walls behind me here, and we're going to have a baptism service next Sunday after church. Now, here's what I need you to do. I need you to sign up. I need you to let us know that you plan to be baptized. And if you haven't been baptized, you should be. You should be water baptized. It is not the washing away of the filth of the flesh, but it is showing a good conscience towards God. It is saying that I believe what Jesus has done for me, and I am coming to that place where I'm taking the step of faith for newness of life. You can sign up in the uh, lobby at the information desk. You can also sign up online. There's a digital card there. But let us know that you're going to participate so that we can be ready for that next week. Before we get into the message today, I do want to uh, just take a moment as a congregation, and I want us to uh, put ourselves for a moment in the position of someone who is in a place, in a space, it is a literal physical place, but it is also a headspace of feeling outnumbered, overwhelmed, outgunned, not ready for the battle, fearful of what will come for tomorrow. And that place and that space happens to be in Europe today, in our world. It happens to be in the Ukraine today. But it's not just in the Ukraine. I want to tell you that it's also in Russia. There are many conscripts and soldiers who have been recruited and forced to fight for their nation in Russia that are just simply doing their civil duty as demanded by their government. No desire to even be engaged in this fight. And there are many people who are now looking at the very real prospect of having to take up arms, and many already have, to defend their freedom. We as Americans know a little something about freedom, don't we? We know a little something about what it means to stand up for your freedom and to defend your rights for freedom. And I think what we're seeing today in the Ukraine is we are seeing a modern-day David and Goliath scenario. And those of us who have read and understand the Word of God, we realize that the outmatched, the outnumbered, the outgunned, they oftentimes are the very ones whose God, God's intervention comes in and shows himself strong on their behalf. And so I want us to put ourselves out for just a moment in a place of prayer, in a place of solidarity, where we stand with the people of Ukraine and the people, not the government, but the people of Russia. Because many people who are dominated by these tyrants around the world do not want this kind of fight. So if you will just do this with me, if if you can close your eyes for just a moment, we're going to focus our hearts and our attention and our thoughts upon Europe. Father, today we put ourselves in a place of empathy to try to understand what those around the world are going through. And, 
and the fear that those who are in bunkers and trying to get to the border and trying to flee that country of Ukraine and, and those who have taken up arms to fight who have never shot a weapon or even thought about having to defend their homeland before. We pray for courage and strength. We pray for President Zelensky and for our national leaders and for Europe to do the right thing. We pray for the people of Russia who are crying out for freedom, who are being rounded up and arrested, that there would rise from this such a battle cry of victory, of freedom. Let the walls come down in these nations that have been walled out so that your good news, the gospel of Jesus, can flood the earth like the waters cover the sea. Let your word prevail. God, rise and show yourself to these people. And it's in Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Today I have a message I want to bring to you out of the seventh chapter of Mark that is titled, A Form of Godliness. Say that with me, A Form of Godliness. Believing the right things does not necessarily guarantee that a person will do the right thing. Doctrine is very important, but doing is the real proof of what you believe. Doctrine may be a list of written things that you acknowledge or you accept on paper, but what you do, putting action to your beliefs, is really the proof of where your heart is, where you're pouring your life into, and what you believe. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 through 5 read like this. But know this, in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. The Apostle Paul was talking here about a certain type of people. He was familiar with this type of people because he used to be one of these type of people. It's easy to relate to someone when you've been in their shoes, when you've walked their path. And I think this is the problem for modern day Christianity for so many in the church world is that we've been clean so long that we forget what it was like when we were dirty. We look down at people who are struggling with the very same things that we were delivered from 20 years ago, and we forget what it was like to have that burden and that oppression of sin on our shoulders. But I'm going to tell you, someone who has experienced the degradations of sin, they are the most empathetic people for those going through that situation. Amen. Someone whose family member has been addicted, has been hooked, has been unfaithful, has had a breakup in some type of relationship in their life, when it's touching close to your home, someone who has been in a war-torn nation, someone who has been through a battle, someone who has been through the PTSD of being in a war and being on the other side of the rifle, having to take someone's life and not wanting to do it, they can empathize, they can understand what those people are like. And the Apostle Paul is writing to us here about a certain group of people that we should turn away from. And he knew this because he was one at one time, but also Jesus gave us a very similar clue to this type of people. Now, here's what I want to tell you when we read this verse. 
And I'll cover this more thoroughly when we get into Matthew and Luke a little bit later in the year as we're tracking through the Gospels all year long. And that is that there is no new scripture being written. This is the oak of God. This book is the oak of God planted in the forest of eternity, entwining its roots around the rock of ages by which the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church or against the word of God. But while there is no new scripture being written, Jesus gave us a very keen insight when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Can I tell you that God is speaking today? Somebody say, Pastor, I haven't heard from God. Well, when was the last time that you read the will? You know, you're mentioned in the will. They call this the Old and New Testament. This is God's will and testament for his children. And we can hear from God, and there is a very real, living, powerful, sharper-than-a-two-edged sword word of God that is proceeding out of the mouth of God, and it comes through the pages of this book and quickening in our spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. And so you can hear from God. You can commune with God. You don't need to go to the priest, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher, or the deacon. You can get a word from God for yourself. You can approach the throne of grace with boldness to obtain mercy and help in your time of need. Now call the pastor and call the deacon and call your small group leader. Absolutely bind together because if one can chase a thousand to flight, two don't chase 2000, two can chase 10,000 to flight. So there is power in agreement. There is power in unity. But here's what I want to tell you is that there are multiple fulfillments when we read the scriptures, both in their day hearing it and in our day living it. And every day in between there. And here's what the apostle said. You have to follow me here because I'm going somewhere. The apostle said, but in the last days, perilous times will come. And people often ask, they say, pastor, we certainly are living in the last days. Pastor, are we living in the last days? I mean, look at all that's happening in the world. And here's what I would tell them. And here's what I would tell you. In a sense, we are, but I don't know for sure if we're living in the last days the way that people think the end of our age, the end of our world is going to happen. But I do know this. You are living in your last days. Man is only given 80 years. And if by grace, a little bit more. And some who, I'm sorry to tell you, but hey, when you get beyond 80, you're on borrowed time according to the scripture. But each and every one of us should be circumspect because we do not know the day and the hour that our life will end. So we are living in our last days. We look at the signs of the time and we think we're living in the last days and we very well may be. I mean, so many things are aligning. But when Paul was writing this, he was talking about a last days and referencing uh, something that meant a contemporary fulfillment in their time. This was written about uh, mid-60s AD. So we're going almost 2,000 years back. And the temple, the Jewish temple, was still in operation. Jesus had been crucified. The sacrificial lamb had been crucified, yet they were still making sacrifices and obligation in the temple. And that temple in 70 AD was destroyed. And it was the very real last days of the Jewish world that was 
going to forever change. You know, since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, they have never sacrificed again in the area of Jerusalem or any temple. Their world, their Jewish world, came to an end. And here's what the apostle was telling us. There was a, a, a contemporary fulfillment for their day. All throughout the ages, each generation of Christ followers have believed that they were living in the last days. You can write, read it through any of the church fathers. And it's good for us to be of a kind of heart and mind to be ready, for we know not the hour that our Lord comes. But he's talking about a people that we should turn away from because they have a form of godliness. They look good on the outside, but they deny the power thereof. Go with me to Mark chapter 7. We're going to see the kind of people that Paul talked about because Jesus dealt with them his entire ministry. When you look at chapter seven, you have to get a glimpse first of what just happened in the previous chapter. Did you know that your Bible has chapters and verses that was only added about 250 years ago? That wasn't something that Jesus wrote down, verse two. That was added for us to be able to read it more easily. But sometimes the thought and continuity gets broken up with those chapters and verses. And so we have to get a context. This, this happens just after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus gets in a boat. He walks in the water to his disciples. He gets into the next town. And it says in, verse, in chapter 6 that they were bringing the sick out to Jesus in such large droves that he couldn't even lay his hands on all of them. But if they could even just touch the hem of his garment, then they would be healed. And then we get to chapter 7. It says, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. This was the established order of professional clergy of Jesus' day. They were not happy that this Jesus was doing signs and wonders and things that they had only talked about and prayed for, but could never demonstrate. Now, this Jesus, they called him a rebel rouser. He really was a revolutionary, but not in the sense that they were thinking that he's going to overthrow a government. He came to bring a kingdom of which they could not even comprehend. It says that the Pharisees and some of the scribes came. Now, when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is unwashed hands, they found fault. If you are in the position of a fault finder, if you can only ever see what is wrong then you may be treading on some dangerous ground with a kind of company of people who you probably don't want to associate with. It's the kind of people the apostle Paul said to turn away from because Jesus also dealt with these same people. It says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many things which they perceived and hold like, and here are the things that these Pharisees did, washing of cups and pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Couches, I thought, they wash their couches? No, that's, that's, that's like a, a pan, a pot, a couch. It, it's, it's big enough to put more stuff in. They washed all those things. They, so in other words, these people had the proper forms. They had the right beliefs. They had the correct doctrine of the day. But I ask you, were they demonstrating through their actions the right deeds? Were they doing the things that would result in the life or the bondage of people? Look at verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, 
as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You ever heard of just giving lip service to something? That's what they were doing. They were just giving lip service to their devotion to God. And no one dared to question them because on the outside, how could you challenge them? They looked righteous. They looked holy. They had long robes. They had sad faces. They would let you know that they fasted. And whenever they would give, they would cling a a, a symbol. They would take the change and they would make sure it went hard down into the offering plate. We don't pass the offering plate here no more, but that's okay because your right hand shouldn't know what your left hand is doing. You should give unto the Lord in a heart that I want to get involved in what God is doing. I wanna partner with God in all of my life and my finances are part of my life. And what they would do is they would make a big spectacle and a big show over their generosity. No one would dare to challenge them because they were doing it the right way. And Isaiah said, y'all just have lip service to this stuff. You don't really have the heart of worship. And verse seven, and in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Now, there are commandments of God and there are commandments of men. And this is what Jesus is going to start to unravel and and teach them. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. What are the tradition of men? Jesus talks about it. He tells it, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Many other such things. Put, put it in whatever basket, whatever category you want, but all of these other external extremities, these other things on the outside that make you look religious to other people, God doesn't look at the outside. God looks at the heart. Amen. You can talk a good talk, but can you back it up with your walk? As one preacher said, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. You might want to write that down. You'll get it later. (laughs) What it means is, translation, actions speak louder than words. Are you simply believing the right things, doctrine, or are you doing the right things, heart intent? Verse 9, and he said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep whose tradition? Your tradition. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Now, we form things in our world. Forms are important. Forms are vital to make sure that things operate correctly. When this building was built, no doubt, just like your home that you live in, wherever you're at, there were were forms that were brought in after they dug a trench to put in a footer and they formed that footer so that they could put the concrete in there to establish a firm foundation. And without the right forms in the right spot, that building could not stand. We, we, we use forms in every area of life. I just thought about a couple of them uh, this week. I'm thinking, you know, this muffin container here and this pie pan are forms. They form the exact right portion for a muffin, for a cupcake. This pie pan can be used for many different dishes, more than just a cake or a cake pan, whatever this is. 
Someone's looking at this, they say, hey, pastor, don't bake much. No, I don't. That's my wife. <laughs> you got to be able to laugh at yourself a little bit. I can get real pharisaical real quick and tell you, I was right about that. No, I was wrong. This cake pan, baking pan, whatever this is. But it's a form. And this is a form. And you can't get much beyond this form or whatever is put in it is going to start to bubble over. But if I observe the right form, I can get from it, from that container, what I'm intending to get from it. There are forms in our life of of things that we have to do all the time. There is a form in which you set up your week and your schedule. There's a form in which you map out your financial life. There is a form, there is some type of category that you put in ordering your own personal life. All those things are good. But when you allow those things to become the preeminent, when you allow your tradition to trump what it is that God is doing in the land. And you say, no, 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 no. That's not like the form that they established 25 years ago when I used to do that program in church. That's not like the form that I was used to five years ago when we set this up the way we set up the form. Well, if we're not careful, we can go right over into the same category of having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. What is the power? It is what is on the inside? What is the purpose and intent of what you're forming. And they had taken the traditions of man and they had promoted them over the commandment of God. I've got a couple points here. Number one is traditions can be good, but only when observed, not worshiped. As human beings, we have a default mode where we, we like to be comfortable. We don't like change. We like things to relatively stay the same. And, you know, it's, it's easy for a younger person to kind of throw off on a, on a little more uh, maybe advanced in age person. And then we also have those who are interesting in age. We don't have any old people. They're interesting in age. And, and it's, it's, it's funny when you're younger, you just don't even understand the disconnect of the next generation. But as you start living life a little bit and getting comfortable to your forms, you find yourself thinking, what did they do with the thing I was familiar with. How, uh, don't raise your hand, but if you've bought a newer vehicle recently, you'll realize there's no eight track in there anymore. <laughs> there's not even a cassette player. I, I used to, when I was in Bible college, I, they, they, they had cassettes I could check out in the library and I would drive home from Columbus every weekend and I would listen to cassettes, I'd flip them over, I'd listen to cassettes in my car. But then I noticed this change started happening to CDs. I'm dating myself really, really. And, and so I had to go to the store. I went to Walmart and for $15.99, I bought this little CD converter that had a cord on it with a tape a cassette. Do you ever remember that? You'd set it in the seat next to you and you hit a bump and your, your CD would skip. And then I finally was able to get a car that had a premium sound CD player. Boy, was I riding high. I mean, this was good life. It had this spring or something in it that no longer did my CD skip when I hit a bump. It was great. But now all those CDs are no good because they don't even sell automobiles with a CD player. I mean, I remember when they went to the five stack CD so you didn't have to get out and change it. But now they don't even offer that. It's all on podcasts. It's all on Apple Play or it's on Spotify. There, there are things that change and it upsets our world. Our form gets out of sort, out of joint. It would be so much easier if nothing would ever change. It would be so much easier if everyone in this church just thought like me. 
And you think the same thing in your life, in your family. And so what we do is we set up traditions. We keep things in our form. We don't want things to change because it makes us uncomfortable. You just take somebody's seat in church that's been sitting there for five years and find out you can't hardly worship on this side of the church if you're used to sitting on that side of the church. We have forms. We have habits. We have protocol. We have things that we go through the motions. And if we're not careful, church, listen, we can say with our lips that we love God and we love people and we're going to serve God and we're going to serve people. But in our heart, we really don't like it when people don't act like God. Newsflash, people do not naturally act godly. And usually you will not feel very godly when it comes to having to walk out your faith before someone who is difficult in your life. Godly action precedes godly feelings. If you will start doing what the word says, if you will start doing like God, amazing thing happens. You start feeling the gratitude of your own forgiveness of sins and you start feeling those godly feelings. Just try this. Think about that person that gets on your nerves the most, that person that has hurt you, that has offended you, that has caused you the most trouble in life. And I want you to take a challenge for the next week, earnestly and urgently. I want you to pray for them. I mean, not pray like, their brakes go out going down the hill, a flower pot falls off their seal. Not, not that kind of prayer. Don't get me on country song now, come on. Don't pray that way. Don't pray, God, go get them. I mean, I want you to pray blessings upon their life. I want you to pray that God would enlarge their territory, that he would bless them indeed, that no harm would befall them, that their family would prosper, that their finances would be blessed, that their children would have honor and favor. I want you to really start praying for them. Here's what you'll find. You cannot influence and antagonize someone at the same time. You cannot pray for someone and hate on them at the same time. There is a, a change that happens in our heart. And then this is the best result is that when they do get a blessing in life and listen, they are going to get a blessing in life. Then you can say, of course they're blessed. I prayed for them. God hears my prayers. And you can rejoice with those who rejoice. But traditions are good as long as they're observed and they're not worshiped. Why do we do what we do? Because it feels comfortable. We don't like to be out of our comfort zone. And the danger in doing things the same way all the time is that it can become a religious ritual and thus it will cease to affect our mind. We worship God with our mind, with renewing of our mind, and it ceases to affect our souls. Number two, Traditions of men can result in just going through the motions. What a dangerous place it is in our walk with God to just simply get to the place of going through the motions. Rote ritual expression. Doing it that way because we've always done it 
that way. You've probably heard the story, the, the, the newlywed couple and the wife just wanted to bless her husband so good. So she thought, I'm going to make him a pot roast like he's never tasted before. She called her mom, got the recipe and they went to the store, bought all the ingredients and she's at the kitchen counter and he comes in to sneak in to see what's happening. About that time, she's cutting off the quarter of the, the roast and she just lops it in the trash can. He said, whoa, 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 we paid good money for that. Why did you cut off that portion of the roast? And she said, I don't know. My mom always did it that way. He said, well, call your mom and find out why. Calls mom and she says, I don't know. Grandma always did it that way. Well, mom, call grandma and find out why. And grandma said, I never had a pot that was big enough for the whole roast. (laughs) If we're not careful, church, we can go through the motions to the point where we're simply doing things because someone else did it. You need to get into this book for yourself and rightly divide the word of truth and know, listen, you should be checking out the preacher when he says something you don't understand. You should be emailing me and saying, now, now, pastor, where do you find that in the word? I'm not offended. That's okay. I don't know everything. We did a a marriage conference this past weekend. It was wonderful. And they put us up uh, at the end session on a question answer session. Here's here's the, the bad thing about question answer sessions. Anybody more than 20 minutes from where you live is usually a professional and can answer all your questions. I can't answer all your questions. I can get stumped. And if I don't know the answer, I'll simply tell you, I don't know the answer. Or I may tell you something like, I've been thinking about that for a while and I'm still thinking about it. (laughs) Haven't quite figured that one out yet. I just thank God that he has suffered with me through all of my wrong theology throughout the years. And that what I know of God is enough to know of salvation that when I get there, Jesus will fix all my wrong theology. Amen. 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 And I've also learned that there are people who have different theological beliefs than I do, yet they love Jesus passionately. And we can set aside secondary issues so that we can get to the main thing. And that is that we worship a risen King, that he is coming again, that he suffered, bled and died on that cross so that we don't have to go to a cross. And that when we're baptized into the family of faith, that we have come up with newness of life. Our old life has been buried with him and we can now walk in newness of life. Traditions of men can result in just going through the motions like washing cups and jugs. But what about our heart? What about washing the inside? Jesus told the the Pharisees of his day, yeah, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're like dead men's bones. On the outside, you're washed really clean and you look impressive and people say, wow, look at them. But how are you on the inside? What's your thought life like? When was the last time you took a moment to think about what you're thinking about? That's where the word of God will search us, will be a a searchlight to our heart, will be a purifier of our thoughts and deeds and intentions of our thoughts. When was the last time you took inventory of your motives? What do you mean, pastor? Why do you do what you do? Why do you read the Bible? Are you simply just obeying what we asked corporately to do, to read a chapter a day for this entire year of the New Testament so that you can check a box and say, I did it. Do you just pray so that you can get it out of the way and go on to the important things of your day? Why do you do what you do? Take an inventory of your motives. Why do you drink too much when you get tired? Why do you overeat when you're depressed? Why do you kick the dog and yell at your wife when your day didn't go well. Why do we do what we do? We have to take an inside look. 
How is the condition of our heart? Because we might believe the right things, but are we doing the right things? If not, then we're just going through the motions. We all have traditions or things that we've learned by default, by routine. And those things can be great to keep us centered. They can be great to keep us on track. They can be wonderful to to make sure that we have a regular time of communion with our family and, and getting together. But we must bring ourselves before God to ensure that we're doing it for the right reason and not just going through the motions. Third point, following the commandment of God brings renewal. I want you to see this. Following the commandment of God brings renewal. And with renewal, there is a refreshing. You ever get something new and you anticipate what it's gonna be like to hold that new phone in your hand or to put on that new garment? Something new, there's a a sense in which there's a freshness, there's a refreshing. When we follow the commandment of God, this renewal revives our heart and we truly are refreshed. Most people think that there are far more commandments in God's word than there really are. You've heard people say, well, I couldn't do that Christian thing. There's just too many rules. I can't keep all those regulations. I can't keep up with all of that task of trying to make sure I do the right thing. The reality is there are very, very few commandments in the word of God. We have complicated things by trying to make sure that there's a regulation or a rule for the rule breakers, but we have made it so hard. Jesus simplified it. He was asked this question, okay, Jesus, you're so smart. What is the greatest commandment? They were hearkening back to the 10 commandments, the the law given by Moses. What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus is in clever nature like he always did. Didn't just give them one thing. He actually gave them three. He said, the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all of your strength. And he didn't stop there. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we're not careful, we'll miss that there's a a third commandment there and it's loving yourself. I I don't have time to preach about self-love, but we all have this default mode where we love ourselves enough that we take care and nourish our body. We take care and nourish ourselves. And so at least if we could, even people who have a a self-deprecation and they look down on themselves and they're hard on themselves, if we could at least love our neighbor to the point where we care enough to brush our own teeth and take care of our own hygiene, some of us just need to have that kind of love at least for our neighbor. But Jesus said, It's love God and love others. Then later on in the book of John, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. What is it? Love one another. That's really all the commandments you have in the entire New Testament. Now, there are a lot of teachings of Jesus. There are a lot of teaching the apostle Paul, but they're not commandments. They're principles. You will live a better life if you follow the principles of Jesus. But he wasn't commanding and putting hard rules on you and saying, if you don't do this, God's gonna get you. No, if you don't do it, nature, gravity is gonna get you. It'd be like Jesus teaching a lesson on gravity, saying, I command you not to jump from the roof of that building. Jesus never commanded that. He said, if you do, the law of gravity is gonna take over, you're gonna fall. That's what he said. 
And there are all kinds of these life principles in the teachings of Jesus that as we glean them, we take them into our heart, we realize I don't have to do it. I get the privilege of knowing what is best to do and what's not best to do, what the will of God is for my life. And it is this, to love God and to love other people. There is this, uh, this thing in, in the 21st century mindset that we all want the bottom line. And that's what they wanted. They wanted to know Jesus What's the greatest commandment? Just, just sum it up for us, bottom line it, tell us what it is. I call it the minimum entrance requirements. What are the minimum entrance requirements? What is the minimum I have to do to get a paycheck on Friday? What is the minimum I have to do to pass the class? What is the minimum I have to do to get the grade? What is the minimum I have to do to get into heaven? And so what has happened in much of our preaching and our teaching is that we have focused on the minimum entrance requirements of this life is all about just trying to get to heaven, that we have created a whole host of people who have a bunch of fire insurance for their spiritual life. Amen. What do you mean, pastor? I mean that they prayed the prayer. They came and got baptized. Okay, check it off the list. But they're not discipling with the Lord. And discipling with the Lord isn't simply just going to church but it's fellowshipping with the saints. Somebody say, pastor, you know, I don't have to go to church to go to heaven. That's right, but why would you take the chance? Why would you not wanna be with the beloved? Why would you not wanna be with fellow like-minded believers that worshiping and lift up their hands and you can feel what it's like to, to sing together unto the Lord, songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Why would you not wanna be part of a family of faith that can walk with you and bear your burdens and can be with you in the hard times and rejoice in the good times? Why would you not want to be part of that family? This is the best family in the world. And the church is not, just this four wall place that we gather in. The church is anywhere where God's people quickened by God's spirit are gathering to worship God. That's the church. I'm the church, you're the church, your neighbor's the church. Anyone who has said yes to the claims of Christ in their life, they are the church. But here's the question we must ask ourselves if we're not simply gonna just go through the motions. If we're going to believe and do the right things, we have to ask ourselves this question. What does love require? I don't have to go the second mile. It's not a command. Jesus wrote it in there, go the second mile, but that's not a command. You don't have to, but if you do, you're operating in love. I don't have to turn the other cheek, but if you do, you're not being like the world. You are being opposite of the ways of this world. I don't have to love my wife. Your life's a whole lot better if you do. Because <laughs> if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Well, I don't have to give to that church. No, you don't. You can be stingy and you can hold it all in and you can be like the person in Ecclesiastes where it says they hold on and yet they have less, but the person who casts their bread on many waters, they have more. It's amazing. I don't even understand the principle, but I know that God's mathematics is not like the world's mathematics. Amen. That 90% in your pocket with giving 10 to the church will go a whole lot further than 100% in your bank account. If you don't believe me, it's Old and New Testament. For 40 years, the children of Israel walked throughout the desert now, I don't know what kind of desert it was. I've been there. It looks pretty rugged. It looks pretty rough. I don't know what it was like in their day, but it says their shoes never wore out. 
my wife would not be very happy about that. She likes her shoes. My daughter does too. But their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never needed to be gone and get, got new clothes. Why? Because God provided. That's it. No, you don't have to tithe. That's not a law. It's not. But you're missing out on the covenant life with God. You're missing out on God's provision and his best when you don't truly worship. You know, giving is, this isn't even a given message. I don't know. Somebody needs to hear this. Giving financially is a worship as unto the Lord. Amen. It's worship. You're missing out on worship. I don't know very many people that, that come to a worship service and say, ah, I don't want to do the music part. Some might, but ah, I don't want to do the preaching part. Ah, forget that prayer piece. No, prayer, music, preaching, praying, giving. It's all worship. Amen. Our life is a worship unto God. We're showing God that we trust what he said. We trust what he said. I'll, I'll get off of that. Verses 10 through 13, there's this, in, in, in Mark 7, there's this Corbin principle. And this was, uh, Corbin means, means uh, uh, blessing for God. Corbin means blessing. And, and what people were doing is, see, in, in this day and age, you were, uh, inc- it was incumbent upon you to take care of the elderly in your family. There was no social services. The government didn't give them a check. They didn't have special homes for family. But when someone got aged in this day and age, they would take them in and they would care for them. Why? Because they cared for you when you couldn't care for yourself. It is a godly principle. It's reciprocation. It's reciprocal that what someone has done for you, you desire to want to do for them. And so there, there was this whole host of people that decided, hey, I don't want to take care of my elderlies. I don't want to take care of people in my family. And so whatever portion that I have that would take care of them, I'm just going to devote it to God. I'm going to say it's Corbin. It's reserved for the Lord. But here's the pr- principle about Corbin. As long as you were alive, you could actually use whatever it is that you were going to devote for God. And here's what people were doing out of greed. They were saying, I'm not going to take care of my obligations to my family. I'm going to designate my wealth to the Lord, but use it until I no longer need it. Think about the neglect of that. Think about the premeditation, the heart contempt of that. But before we cast down on them, do we do certain things like that in our own world? in our own life, things that we would rather not relinquish, that we would like to hold on to, that we simply designate as Corbin. Verse 13 says, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you handed down and many such things. This is like a generational curse. They handed this down, these traditions they handed down from generation to generation. You know, there are also generational blessings you can hand down the right things to your children and your grandchildren. Things such as devotion to God, mercy for those who need mercy, love for the world, taking care of the things in your life that you can make a difference in. There are things you can hand down in kindness. Or we can set up all of the things that we want as idols in our life. But the question is this, what's more important? How you look on the outside or the condition of your heart? That's, that's really the question. And Jesus goes in here to the next portion into a powerful teaching. This is not a parable. It's plain spoken for all of them to hear. Now, listen to what he says. Verse 14, when he called the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. This is how we know it's not a parable. Hear me, everyone, 
and understand. So it's not just the disciples, but the crowd was gathered. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside which can defile him. He's talking about food. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had entered the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. I just told you it's not a parable because the writer nor Jesus ever called this a parable. His disciples called it a parable. It's a lesson in how even as followers of Jesus, we can get it wrong sometimes. And they did. So he said to them, and thus you are without understanding also. Jesus was very patient with his disciples. Aren't you glad? Are you a follower of Jesus? Aren't you glad? that he was very patient with his, I'm glad he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. And he's patient about it, all right? He's patient with you. Jesus said, you didn't understand this and you still don't understand. Do you not perceive that whatever enters the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach. Jesus gave him a physiology lesson. Jesus had to talk him about anatomy, about the body. He said, don't you know that whatever you eat can't defile you? It's not about washing the right things. And if you eat something with unwashed hands, you're unclean, that you can't go to the temple and worship. Jesus said that has nothing to do with defilement. That's what the people to be avoided said. If you don't wash your hands right in just the right manner and do the right ritual, then you can't eat and be clean and go in and worship. Now Jesus gets really specific about it because it is not into the heart, but his stomach and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. Anybody like bacon? Amen. So you know that 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 was out the door. Verse 20, and he said, whatever comes out of man, that's what defiles man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness, And all these evil things come from within and defile a man. Jesus gave them this lesson. He said, this isn't even a parable. This is progressive revelation, something they should have easily learned, but they weren't looking this direction. Jesus said, don't focus on the outside. Change your look. Let's look on the inside. Food cannot defile you. It's not what you eat, which makes you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart. You ever been talking to somebody and they'll, they'll give a crack or a, a wise saying or, or they maybe even a, say something offensive and then they'll say to you, oh, I'm just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. No, you need to look at them and say, oh, no, you're just being serious. Because the Bible tells me out of the abundance of the heart does the mouth speak. Now, I know you're, you're too nice. You're not going to do that. But the preacher gave you permission if you want to do that. It's going to shock them. Or just look at somebody and say, what exactly do you mean by that? It'll, it'll really stop them in their tracks. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance, what's bubbling out of your mouth has already been settled in your heart. And Jesus said, you can't be defiled by the things you eat, but you certainly can be defiled by the things which come out of there. So what do you do with the things that come out of there? You have to submit them to the word of God. Jesus gives this seemingly odd statement, verses 23 through 30, uh, 24 through 30, about children eating bread and for the uh, crumbs of dogs. He's, he's not talking in a derogatory way to them. He's actually validating the lady's request. But let's close with this. Jesus used a unique healing technique 
You guys can come. Jesus used this healing technique by spitting into a man's eyes and healing was slow to come and he wiped it away and then Jesus prayed for him again. You know, there's nothing wrong with praying again. It's not doubt and unbelief. Jesus did it. The first pass, it didn't happen, but it did happen. Jesus healed this man. And here's what the disciples always wanted to do. And if we're not careful, here's what we want to do. We want to mimic and do exactly like Jesus did. Now, there's nothing wrong with WWJD. I've had the bracelet, had the t-shirt. I think we should ask more, what would Jesus do? But let me tell you this about trying to just mimic everything that Jesus did. God is not at a lack for creativity. You know, God can move in our day differently than he moved in our parents' day. God can move and do things differently than he used to do before. In the 1950s in this country, there was a great healing revival sweeping our land. Ministers like A.A. Allen and Jack Coe and Oral Roberts, they were buying these tents and they were going from town to town and they would have amazing results by putting people in tents. You know that, that A. Allen bought one of the largest tents of that day and it was seated 20,000 people under a tent, a canvas tent. It's amazing. And God did a great revival, but that day came and went. And then we had the charismatic renewal and that went into churches and, and auditoriums and, and coliseums and the great uh, revivals that Billy Graham would give, give invitations and people would flood to the altar. And that day has come and that form is gone. Stop trying to fit the current move of God into a form that you've established in your mind the way it should be. Let God out of the box. Let God out of the form. That way you don't have to deny the power anymore. Say, God, do what you want to do, however you want to do. Here am I, send me, I'll go for you. I'm a willing and yielded vessel. It might look different than you've ever thought. It might feel different to you. You may not like all the aspects of the revival, but I'm gonna tell you, God is moving in our land and revival isn't something we need to pray for someday. Revival is now. Revival is here. We need to get in the stream. We need to get in the flow and recognize what God is doing. Everyone stand with me. Heads bowed and no one looking around. Maybe you're here today. Before they sing, maybe you just, you need to acknowledge some forms that you have held as tradition that has really become a religious ritual and you wanna give that up today. Maybe there are some things in your own life that you just wanna lay before God in prayer. The Bible calls it repentance and it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I'm gonna pray and they're gonna sing and we'll close here in just a minute. But if this is you, I want you to pray with me. Dear God, I come to you today I'm a yielded vessel. Break all of my tradition that's not of you. I don't want to deny the power anymore. I want to break the mold. I repent of all my wrong thinking, all of my wrongdoing. I don't want to exalt the commandment of man I wanna receive the commandment of God. Refresh me today, O Lord, in Jesus' name.